Welcome to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, showcasing BYU devotionals that blend reason and science with faith, university disciplines with discipleship, and the scholarly with the sacred. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. When I walk to campus, my route takes me along the front of Heritage Halls. There underneath some shady trees, the sidewalk runs along an irrigation canal, a relic perhaps of an earlier era when orchards rather than buildings graced this area. One day while walking next to the canal, I was wrapped in thought about the pollination of a little aquatic plant, Xanonchelia palustris. How does its pollination move through the water? I'd been studying populations of the planet Fish Springs in the West Desert, about a three-hour drive from Provo. Wouldn't it be grand if Xanonchelia palustris grew right here in this ditch, I thought to myself. I glanced towards the canal, and there it was, <laughs> Xanonchelia palustris. I couldn't believe it. Now imagine the scene. It's early morning. Students are scurrying to class along the sidewalk. A semi-respectable professor is walking with the students in front of Heritage Halls. Suddenly, with an excited look on his face, he rips off his sports coat, rolls up his trouser legs, and jumps into the ditch. (laughs) He reaches down, pulls up a small water weed, and closely examines it with delight. Within an hour, I'd brought tripods and high-speed cameras to the canal to study pollination. My graduate student, Rebecca Sperry, and I found that Xanonchelia palustris releases its pollen, little floating omelets of mucilage. As they dissolve, the pollen, which are heavier than water, drop like little baseballs onto the waiting female stigmas that function like little catcher mitts below. We sent a description of our results to the world's expert on aquatic plants, Professor C.D.K. Cook at the University of Zurich. His group repeated our study in Switzerland, and together with our respective students, we published an announcement of our findings. Although my discovery of Xanonchelia palustris in the Heritage Hall's ditch led to some very interesting biology, I must confess, confess to feeling silly. No, I didn't feel silly about jumping in the ditch. Any of my Biology 130 students would have done precisely the same thing. What I felt silly about was that I had not previously noticed uh, Xanonchelia palustris in that ditch before even though I'd walked hundreds of times along that sidewalk. I had viewed the ditch, but have never truly before seen it. How can we acquire the ability to truly see things as they are, rather than merely our own idiosyncratic version of reality? Is there a way that we can learn to see the world with new eyes? We know that our Heavenly Father is able to see things in a pure and perfect way. He can see the truth of all things because He knows things as they are and as they were, and as they are to come. The Lord has a perfect vision of the universe, for all things are present with Him, and He knows them all. His ability to perceive things perfectly caused the Book of Mormon prophet Jacob to exclaim, Oh, how great the holiness of our God! For He knoweth all things, and there is not anything save He knoweth it. I believe that in our pre-mortal existence, our Heavenly Father shared with us selected glimpses of His perfect knowledge. We know that He taught us about the atoning mission of Jesus Christ. The great council in heaven was one of His instructional techniques. When the plan of salvation was explained to us, perhaps in an arena like this, 
An expression of gratitude was shouted by all present, the echoes of which are heard throughout the universe. Imagine what we personally felt towards the Savior as we learned in that arena that He would live a perfect life and then give it voluntarily up for us. In our first estate, we walked in the light of day. In this life, however, we have neither the clarity nor the persistence of vision that we enjoyed in the premortal existence. Through that amnesia-like process called birth, we have forgotten the image of our Heavenly Father. And in this world, our vision is fogged, fogged by design and clouded to prove us and to test us. None of us have access to our full premortal memories. Rather than beholding continually the face of God, in this mortal existence, temptations beset us. Isn't it interesting that these temptations are symbolized in Lehi's dream as mists of darkness? Yet the Lord has not left us bereft of hope. Just as the people in Lehi's dream press forward through the mists of darkness by clinging to the iron rod, so we can overcome temptations that confront us by holding fast to the Word of God. When we wait upon the Lord in an attitude of humility and teachability, we become open to spiritual impressions which form a type of peripheral vision that can alert us to unseen dangers. But like airline pilots receiving guidance instruction from air traffic control, to receive this help, we must be tuned to the right frequency. Sometimes I fear that the Lord speaks to us, but we do not hear or understand His promptings. This apparently was the case with Nephi's brothers Laman and Lemuel, who were past feeling that they could not feel His words. Other times, I think we're tuned to the right frequency, but we just don't want to hear the instructions from the air traffic control. Amulek, reflecting on the time before his conversion, recalled, I was called many times, and I would not hear. Therefore I knew concerning these things, yet I would not know. This, perhaps, is the state of many good people in this world who live without God, who, in the words of Camus, while unable to be saints but refusing to bow down to pestilences, strive their utmost to be healers. Though such individuals do many good deeds and bestow all their goods to feed the poor and even give their bodies to be burned, we're taught in Corinthians that they miss a more excellent way. Many who have felt His loving touch can exclaim, as did the man healed by the Savior in the waters of Siloam, whereas I was blind, now I can see. Can we experience closeness to God when we are no longer physically in His presence? After Adam and Eve were cast out from the Garden of Eden, they could no longer see God. Yet, like them, we sometimes vaguely sense the sweet smell of the unseen flowers of Eden. Have you ever sensed that fragrance, that closeness to heaven, where you can't see clearly, but feel as if you're enveloped in a garden of love, a garden planted by our Heavenly Father? The longing for the return to that garden and the tentative halting steps that we take towards it are the beginning of faith. In the previous life, we walk by both faith and sight. But in this life, it's our challenge to learn to walk by faith alone. Unlike God, we cannot see the end from the beginning. And so we find ourselves here in what Elder Maxwell calls the mortal middle. I sometimes like to term it the mortal muddle. We have to make our way based only on a dim and foggy image of reality. President Joseph F. Smith wrote, While we are in mortality, we are clogged and see us through a glass darkly. We see only in part, and it is difficult for us to comprehend the smallest things with which, with which we are associated. There are at least two types of error 
possible in our present condition. The most obvious danger is that we will embrace something that is false. However, there is a second danger, one perhaps that is more threatening to those of us engaged in scholarly pursuits. It is that the little piece of truth that we see here will so fill our horizon that we'll assume that our little truth is the entire truth. I think this error comes from our mistake in our largely inchoate and partial version of reality for things as they really are. Now, this second type of error is more difficult to detect because our perception may, in fact, not be false. It just might not be the whole truth. In the case of my experience in the Heritage Hall's ditch, my perception wasn't false. I'd walked hundreds of times along that path and indeed had seen a ditch flowing with water. But at one moment, my vision became opened and I perceived far more, habitat for a very rare aquatic plant. Perhaps a recent experience would help to make this point clear. After a BYU commencement exercise, I was changing out of my academic gown when I looked up and saw the prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley, enter the room. I was partially obscured from view by the coat rack as I watched President Hinckley come face to face with one of our distinguished guests, a non-member of the church. Our guest, a very kindly scholar, had received the highest academic awards and accolades in this world. Yet when I saw him respond to President Hinckley's greeting, I realized that he perceived only a pleasant older gentleman. He did not see before him a prophet of God. Hello, my name is Gordon B. Hinckley, the prophet said. Our guest nonchalantly responded to the introduction. Suddenly from the side, Elder Spencer Condy, a member of the First Quorum of the Seventy, rushed forward. He grabbed the arm of our distinguished guest and said, This is President Gordon B. Hinckley. He is a prophet of the Lord. President Condy then bore a very brief but powerful testimony of the divinity of President Hinckley's sacred calling. Now, I don't think anyone else saw Elder Condy's courageous act. But as I walked out of the Marriott Center, I thought about what I had just witnessed. Elder Condy and the distinguished professor had both viewed Gordon B. Hinckley, but only one of them had seen a prophet of God. Our guest perception of President Hinckley as a pleasant man was not false. President Hinckley is a very pleasant man. However, if our guest could have had the veil lifted, he would have seen that Gordon B. Hinckley is one of the noble and great spirits who are foreordained to hold all the keys of salvation, to be president of the church, and preside over the kingdom of God on this earth. I think that viewing life through mortal eyes is analogous to viewing the world through a soda straw. The little bit we see might be true, but often the vast panorama of reality escapes us. Consider the story of the prophet Elijah and his servant who were in a city under siege. The servant was deeply alarmed, as I'm sure you would be as well, when he saw that the entire city was surrounded by the Syrian army. Alas, my master, how shall we do? He cried. Elisha answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Face value, Elisha's reply must have seemed like nonsense to the young servant. How could he and his master number more than an entire army? But then Elisha asked God to share his prophetic vision with the young man. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Like Elisha's servant, we typically do not have in this mortal life a complete view of reality. But if we candidly acknowledge our limitations and then humbly seek the Lord's assistance, He can broaden our vision. 
Let me give four examples where such broadened vision can assist us in our studies. First of all is submission to authority. Now, authority is a very important issue in our scholarly work. Those of you who will be receiving midterm grades on your term papers will soon learn from your professors that you need to consult more books and articles. They will also teach you that not all written materials are of equal authority. An article clipped from a tabloid paper purchased at the grocery store checkout stand carries far less weight than an article written by a recognized scholar in a peer-reviewed journal. While we seek to develop gifted scholars at BYU, we also realize that other virtues should be developed to complement intellectual gifts. As Elder Maxwell warns in the new book on becoming a disciple scholar, quote, genius without meekness is not enough to qualify for discipleship, unquote. At BYU, we have access to a different type of authority. While we respect renowned scholars because of what they know, we pay even greater respect to the Lord's servants because of who called them. If we predicate our obedience to the Lord's servants based on their scholarly qualifications, I think we misunderstand the essential difference in Kierkegaard's terms between a genius and an apostle. Kierkegaard wrote, quote, Genius is what it is of itself. An apostle is what he is by his divine authority. An apostle is not born. An apostle is a man called and appointed by God, receiving a mission from him. End of quote. Allow me to illustrate this story through a personal example. I remember as a young missionary reading that President Kimball had prophesied that the Iron Curtain would no longer be a barrier to our missionary efforts once we were ready to step through. I assumed naively that his comments must refer to some distant millennial epoch. I just couldn't see how the Iron Curtain could fall in my lifetime. My views of the permanency of the Soviet Empire were reinforced when I visited East Berlin during a botanical congress. During my visit there, a jazz fusion group played at a concert at Brandenburg Gate on the west side of the wall. Several hundred young East Germans gathered on the east side of the wall. While they couldn't see the band, they stood quietly listening to the sound of music wafted across the concrete and concertina wire. Now, although these young people represented no threat to the communist regime, the border guards soon arrived and dispersed them with truncheons and clubs. I thought, if music isn't even allowed to permeate this barrier, how can the gospel ever be allowed to be preached freely in the Soviet empire? Although I wanted desperately to believe President Kimball, I fear I was like Elisha's servant. I just couldn't see how our missionaries could ever function in East Germany. Then the miracle of November 1989 occurred. I could scarcely believe the images of the destruction of the Berlin Wall that were broadcast throughout the world. Even more astonishing, young men that I had taught in Aaronic priesthood quorums started receiving mission calls to Russia and to the Ukraine. Like Elisha's servant, I had viewed the world through a soda straw, but President Kimball, acting as a seer, saw the world through a wide-angle lens. It's my personal testimony that the prophets and apostles are watchmen on the tower who can see afar off. They are seers who can behold things not visible to the natural eye. Yet misunderstanding the nature of priesthood authority is not a new phenomenon and not limited to this generation. Even the Savior himself was personally misunderstood by many people. When he returned to his hometown during his ministry, some people asked in derision, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? 
Now, there was some truth in these statements. Joseph the carpenter and Mary, the, <clears throat> Joseph the carpenter and Mary raised Jesus. Jesus had brothers and sisters. But this analysis of Jesus Christ was far from complete. Unlike the people who grew up with Jesus, the disciples earnestly tried to live his teachings. And because of their humility and meekness, they were visited by the Holy Ghost. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, Matthew tells us in chapter 16, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Aided by the Spirit of the Lord, Peter could see a more complete truth. Looking at Jesus, the people of Nazareth saw someone who could craft a table or a chair, the carpenter's son. Looking at Jesus, Peter saw someone who would craft the atonement, the Son of the living God. I testify that the Holy Ghost can witness to us the reality of the Savior and the divine calling of his servants. The prophet Joseph Smith taught, Now if they will be wise, they will humble themselves in a peculiar manner that God may open the eyes of their understanding. The gates of heaven are open when we are humble, allowing us to be led and blessed by priesthood authority. Two, waiting upon the Lord. The second way that spiritual enlightenment Enlightenment can help us in our academic work is by teaching us to wait upon the Lord. In this age of the internet and the world wide web, we might become frustrated when requested information does not come with a single keystroke. In our studies and in our life, we need to learn to humbly wait upon the Lord. We are told in Psalms, wait upon the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thy heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. The prophet Isaiah promised, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. Think of the vision an eagle has. Think of the vision that can come to someone who waits. Moroni teaches us the same doctrine in the book of Ether when he says, Dispute not because you see not, for you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. I experienced a small trial of my faith in Australia when I prayerfully beseeched the Lord to help me understand the pollination biology of a submerged seagrass. Mathematical considerations had led me to predict that Amphibolus Antarctica should be pollinated at the surface of the sea during the lowest tides of the year. Yet, after three stormy days during which nothing happened, I prepared to return home on a Monday morning flight. Sunday, I woke to find the skies sunny and the tides low. If pollination were to occur, it would surely occur that day. If it didn't, I would accept that as evidence that my theory was wrong. Yet I did not want to violate the Sabbath by doing research on Sunday. After some inner conflict, I decided to drive into Melbourne, go to church, and hang out there the entire day so I wouldn't be tempted. Returning after dark, I packed my bags to return flight the next morning. Although I had successfully kept the Sabbath, I feared that my entire trip to Australia had been completely wasted. Monday morning, I waited one last time into the ocean before driving to the airport. To my astonishment, I found that the plants were on verge of pollination. I raced back to the cottage and grabbed my cameras. At the precise moment of lowest tide, thousands of tiny little flowers started floating to the surface of the water where they exploded, releasing their pollen. 
The pollen then floated and collided with the floating female stigmas. I realized in awe that I was the first human being to ever witness this occurrence. I've never been happier to miss a flight, for I returned home with a new scientific discovery. And I don't believe I would have made this observation if I had not waited upon the Lord. We must not despair because the Lord's timetable is different from ours. Sometimes we just have to wait. The playwright Samuel Beckett has vividly portrayed the human malady of waiting. While confronting depression, discouragement, and a variety of absurdities, his characters Vladimir and Estragon wait for Godot, an unseen character who never appears. And yet small miracles occur along the way. Estragon's shoes, which cause him so much pain at the beginning of the play, miraculously fit later. So it is with us. Those who wait upon God find small miracles occurring along the way. In my case, the miracle was a unique botanical observation. Other times, as in the case of the early Mormon pioneers, such miracles are far more poignant. My mother was sick all the way over, wrote Peter McBride, who at the tender age of six crossed the plains with the Martin Handcart Company. Quote, My sister Janetta had the worry of us children. Her shoes gave out, and she walked through the snow barefoot, actually leaving bloody tracks in the snow. Father was a good singer. He had charge of the singing in our company. And the night he died, he sang a song. The first verse reads, O Zion, when I think of you, I long for pinions like a dove and mourn to think that I should be so distant from the land I love. His father's dying song rang in his ears throughout the rest of his life. Peter McBride was miraculously saved from starvation with many other members of the Martin Hancock Company and lived 76 years. And Brigham Young called him wherever he was to lead the saints in singing. His father's song lasted with him. Joseph Smith promised that if we live in strict obedience to the commandments of God and walk humbly before him, then he will exalt us in his own due time. We need to learn to wait upon the Lord. Third, seek for the beautiful. My third example, Seek for the Beautiful, does not refer to the propensity of returned missionaries to seek spouses on return to BYU. I instead refer to the need for caution when we are confronted by those who claim that truly facing reality requires an intimate acquaintance with evil. Now, of course, great works from the Bacchus by Euripides to Macbeth by Shakespeare properly demonstrate the disastrous consequences of pursuing evil. But I reject arguments that a higher sense of morality can be approached by portraying an explicit taxonomy of rape and carnage in films and books. Some have even argued that we can attain transcendence by plumbing the depths of depravity. I find our popular culture in this country to be increasingly violent, voyeuristic, and misogynistic. So it was in the days of Noah when the earth was corrupt before God and it was filled with violence. Unfortunately, there is violence and alienation in this world. But I believe that focusing on evil is a form of tunnel vision, a soda straw view of the universe. The greater reality is that the most powerful force in this universe is love. The truth is that the Creator knows and loves each of us as individuals. Isn't it moving that the first words that Joseph Smith heard in the sacred grove were his own name? And so it is with each of us. The first words we hear in the baptismal font is our own name. Sometimes in this life we forget 
that God knows us intimately and loves us as individuals. In fact, this mortal middle is the only period in our entire existence in which we can live under the illusion that we are not surrounded by love. Like most members of the church, I believe that if there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report, we should seek after those things. Rather than confronting depravity, I believe that realism may be better perceived by considering the lilies of the field. As Elder Neil Maxwell wrote, quote, When those who call themselves realists urge us to yield to the temptations of the flesh because everybody's doing it or because that's how things are, the living God reminds us not of how things seem to be but of how things really are. The genuine realist is really able to consider the lilies of the field and thereby see a planning and a providing God in microcosm, or he can consider the heavens and see God moving in majestic and marvelous macrocosm." End of quote. As a botanist, I interpret Jesus' instruction to consider the lilies not as a suggestion, but as an imperative. Four, mechanism and the role of God in the universe. This consideration of lilies of the field brings me to the fourth point. For some scholars, I fear, limited mortal vision causes them to believe that mechanistic descriptions of the universe leave no room for God. Most people, when they see a sunset or a delicate flower, sense the loving hand of a creator. Sometimes, however, university students who learn the physical mechanisms involved in producing the colors of the sunset or the unfolding of a flower come to believe that the role of God in their lives has been lessened. A panoramic vision of reality would teach us that nothing could be farther from the truth. As a child, my favorite scientific experiment involved the germination of bean seeds in a mason jar. It still takes my breath away. Although I now know a great deal more about the mechanism of that process, I still find it breathtaking to see the germination of bean seeds or the blossoming of crocus flowers in the spring. Had my sense of wonder disappeared with my degree, my education would have left me impoverished indeed. That science which increases our appreciation of beauty, I believe, best advances our understanding of the universe. In his essay on nature, Emerson wrote, quote, if the stars should appear one night in a thousand years, how would men believe and adore and preserve for many generations the remembrance of the city of God which had been shown, end of quote. Imagine how we would believe if we could gaze at the stars and hear the voice of God as did Moses saying, and worlds without numbers have I created, and I also created them for mine own purpose, and by the Son I created them, which is my only begotten. To a true disciple, studies in botany or astrophysics do not weaken faith in the position of God, but only increase admiration and love for the Creator. I think science is very useful in answering how questions. How fast will a rock fall to earth, or how quickly will an allele spread through a population? But I find that science has very little to offer on important why questions. Why was the world created? Why are we here? Deriving morality from mechanism has always been a very dangerous enterprise and one that we've been warned explicitly against in the Book of Mormon. As you recall, Korihor was both nihilistic and militant in his atheism. He knowingly sought to deceive the people of the church, leading away the hearts of many, causing them to lift up their heads in wickedness by offering them his flawed mechanistic view of the universe. He taunted believers in Christ by saying, You cannot know of things which you do not see, therefore you cannot know that there will be a Christ. 
Any perceived need for repentance, Korhor argued, was but the effect of a frenzied mind. Alma responded to Korhor's arguments as a quintessential scientist, something we should perhaps expect from a prophet who later in Alma 32 compares faith to an experiment, an experiment in the germination of a seed. In a stunning turn of argument, Alma reduced Korhor's atheism to a question of evidence. I quote from Alma 30, Alma speaking, And now, what evidence have you that there is no God, or that Christ cometh not? I say unto you that you have none, save it be your word only. But behold, I have all things as a testimony that these things are true. And you also have all things as a testimony unto you that they're true. End of quote. Both Alma and Korhor saw the same stars above their head. Yet figuratively speaking, Korhor viewed the universe through a little toy monocular he found in a Cracker Jack box, while Alma had access to real-time digital satellite imagery. Exploring mechanistic explanations of the universe is useful if we're receptive to the spirit. But if our mechanistic view of reality causes us to resist the panoramic views offered by the Lord, we may indeed experience some modicum of success, but ultimately fail to understand the things that matter the very most to us. Take, for example, my field of tropical rainforest biology. Now I know a bit more about the workings of the rainforest ecosystem than when I saw my first rainforest as a missionary so many years ago. And yet some of the most important things about that rainforest have very little to do with scientific exploration. When I walk through the Samoan rainforest, strolling through fruiter and moss, when I hear the gentle song of a jungle bird, when I gaze on the shafts of light filtering to the floor of that forest through the canopy high above, shafts of light that look very much like a cathedral, I feel very deeply the spirit of the Lord in the rainforest. I feel as though I'm completely enveloped in a painting created by the master artist. My understanding of a few little scientific details about that forest does not reduce my admiration for the artist. Instead, each new thing I learn serves only to increase my awe and appreciation for his work and my desire to protect it. When I walk in the rainforest, sometimes I feel as if I'm approaching the very gates of Eden. And the rainforest is Eden is a notion that brings me back to the beginning of my talk. Why did the Lord send us out of our premortal existence to be tested in a world where we would have clouded vision? And what is it here that allows us to see the world through new eyes? Perhaps the story of the disciples on the way to Emmaus can be read as a metaphor for our experience here on earth. While the two disciples walked, a stranger joined them. I read from Luke 24. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. Now the disciples recounted to this stranger the recent events of the resurrection and crucifixion, but were startled when the stranger began to expound the scriptures to them. Verse 28, And they drew nigh into the village, whether they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave to them. Now it was at this point, perhaps, that either they saw the marks in his hands or listened to the prayer he uttered, or their memory of the accounts they'd heard of the Last Supper were jogged. But in any case, they looked on that stranger with new eyes. 
Verse 31, And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked to us by the way, and while he opened to us the Scriptures? My young brothers and sisters, who I love so much, Christ has provided the way to open our eyes. He asks us in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 19, verse 23, to learn of me, listen to my words, walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. Surely that peaceful spirit is the way that we can know for a reality of the divinity of the Savior, a Savior that we knew very well in the preexistence, but to us here initially as a stranger. We must walk with him on the path to our own Emmaus. We must listen to him as he opens to our understanding the words of the scriptures. And then we must have his divinity revealed to us through the ordinances of the priesthood. At that point, if we're truly meek and humble, the Spirit of the Lord can witness to us of his divinity. No wonder that President Brigham Young told Carl G. Mazur, I want you to remember that you ought not to teach even the alphabet or the multiplication tables without the Spirit of God. I don't believe that Brigham Young feared that mathematics was false, nor do I think that he wanted Carl Mazur to invent a unique series of Mormon mathematical functions. Instead, I believe that Brigham Young knew that unenlightened by the Spirit of God, our education would be just a mere shadow of what it could otherwise be here. This coming week, this entire campus will prepare for an event President Lee told us about, the arrival next week at this time of the prophet of God, President Gordon B. Hinckley. As you and I join together in fasting and prayer to prepare for that day, I pray that the Lord will bless us in the presence of his prophet with the same blessing that he gave to the servant of Elisha. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw that the Lord may open our eyes and that we may see in the presence of his prophet is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.